This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. Finding a new voice. An AMI original podcast. Starring Julia Bennett. I don't think any child, when asked, ever says, I want to grow up to sing in an opera chorus. Opera's kind of an acquired taste to begin with, like raw oysters or espresso. Maybe there is the occasional precocious child who dreams of becoming an opera star. But likely, no one dreams of being one of the singers in the chorus. The opera chorus is the singing background, the villagers, soldiers, royal attendants, and other bystanders. And there are a lot of unglamorous parts of the job. For example, your costume. If it fits you, and you don't pass out from the heat of the lights, you're good to go. I can't tell you how many times, as part of a peasant chorus from one opera or another, I have sweated the evening away in a heavy, scratchy dress, my hair stuck under a tight wig. Makeup designed to make me look tired, starving, and dirty. Looking bad was part of the job description. And on some level, still thrilling. After all, it still meant being a small part of the grand world of the opera. But on one night at the opera, not so long ago, I liked my costume. For once, it was both flattering and comfortable. The last time I'd been in a production of Bizet's Carmen, I'd been seven or eight months pregnant, a beached whale in a corset. I was not exactly the sexy, saucy, svelte Spanish girl I was supposed to be portraying, but in this production, set in 1950s Seville, I was wearing a short skirt, high heels, and a fitted, sleeveless blouse. I actually had a costume that didn't make me dizzy or look ridiculous. I was feeling pretty good. As I got ready for my Act One entrance with the other female chorus, I went over the staging and music in my head. More and more, I had to be pretty focused backstage just to keep from walking into someone or something. At the age of 49, my retinitis pigmentosa was advanced. I still had some vision in both my eyes, but not much, and it was even worse in the low light backstage. On stage, I had to keep my wits about me too. I had to keep track of the 50 or so other people on stage, avoid tripping on set pieces and the long skirts of my costume, and find the conductor in my tunnel-like vision. Oh, and sing and act, too. (laughs) Although stage management and a couple of friends in the chorus knew a bit about my failing vision, I hadn't shared it widely. I really didn't want to draw attention to myself that way, so I worked very hard to appear normal. This evening, as usual... Every step was mapped out. I heard the stage manager whisper the cue to enter, and I sauntered out on stage, doing my best to look 20 years younger. I'd been struggling with my singing recently. When an opera singer reaches a certain age, any cracks in technique will show. Family life had kept me too busy to do the necessary work to fix those cracks. But... I figured that if I couldn't sing it perfectly, at least I would try to act the part with flair. 
In this scene, set outside the cigarette factory where Carmen works, soldiers from the local garrison loiter around, waiting for the girls from the factory to come out on a smoke break. I don't think you'll ever see a group of people looking so ill at ease with the act of smoking as in this scene. After all, for an opera singer, your body is your instrument. So no matter how much the director rolled his eyes, it was hard for us to look like seasoned pros in the smoking department. But we tried. After all, every word we were singing was about the sweet-smelling, heady raptures of smoking. I traveled to my assigned spot stage right, awkwardly waving my fake cigarette around, and flirting with the soldiers. Later in the scene, Carmen sings her famous habanera, willfully declaring her freedom to love whomever she pleases, whenever she pleases. It's a fun scene, and I always enjoyed being a part of it. Midway through the scene, the women exit to return to work, and I headed off along with the rest, feeling that extra little sense of apprehension that always came with leaving the stage. All kinds of scary obstacles waited for me just getting off stage. Blinding stacks of ballet lights in the wings, sandbags holding down set pieces, other singers rushing on stage, wires, monitors, props. All this while my eyes were trying to adjust to the dark. As I made my way toward the wings, I was a little disoriented and I unknowingly made a life-changing decision. I chose to exit downstage of a stack of lights closer to the audience rather than upstage. When I got past the glare of the lights, I immediately knew that something was very wrong. My path forward was blocked by a wall. I frantically hoped that it was just a set piece in the wrong place. Panicking now, I tried to go around whatever it was, knowing that I was probably still in the audience's sightline. I stepped further downstage, only to find myself tripping down some stairs. When I recovered my footing, I was face to face with the astonished faces of the people in the front row. Finally, the horrible truth dawned on me. I was on the floor of the theater in front of the stage. The audience had watched the whole thing, my disorientation and my less than graceful stumble downstairs in high heels. Later, a few kind people would tell me that they'd thought that this episode might have been part of the show. It wasn't, but it certainly became central to the next act of my life. I relived this moment countless times over the next weeks and months. I was no longer a blind person able to fake it or deny what was happening to me. I cried more that night than I had during my whole adult life. Over and over, I kept thinking, this was not supposed to happen to me. This can't be how my life turns out. I was humiliated. And although I knew that my colleagues would be understanding, something big had changed and there was no use denying it. This story is about how I've tried to make sense of that moment, what led up to it, and what it meant for my future. I'd always loved singing. I dabbled with various instruments, but nothing had really stuck. Singing and acting were what I loved. But they were also what made my parents nervous. You see, I'd been born into a cultish, evangelical religion, with rules and regulations designed to dominate every part of followers' lives. As a kid, this meant no fun. No birthday parties, no Christmas, no Halloween, no Easter, no close friendships outside the church, no dancing, no makeup. You get the picture. One aspect in particular was designed to bring us out of the world. Strict observance of the Sabbath of the Old Testament, 
which meant that from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, there was no work or play allowed. From my parents' point of view, whatever I did with my life was not going to involve Friday night performances or Saturday matinees. I understood all this from early on, and my expectations of life were pretty low. Gratefully, my parents didn't pay too much attention to the music that I listened to. As a teenager, sitting on my bed, I would crank up the radio and record myself on a cassette recorder, singing along to my favorite songs. Talk about low tech. I really loved British new wave music, from Duran Duran to David Bowie. I liked classical music too, but I didn't know very much about it, and opera was the farthest thing from my mind. In my dreams, like many other kids of the era, I was a pop star, complete with the wild 80s hair and makeup. It was a fantasy, an escape from reality. But it could only go so far. Because so many of the things I wanted to do were off limits, I just couldn't imagine a future where I would be happy. Eventually, I became withdrawn and depressed. My parents could see that I wasn't happy and made concessions. In fact, the biggest miracle I ever witnessed in my religious life was when my parents let me apply to university to study music classical music, which was apparently the safer option. Their idea was that I would teach music rather than perform it. I would have agreed to just about anything to escape the gray future that lay before me. So, after taking voice lessons for a few months, I auditioned for and was accepted into the music program at the University of Victoria to study classical singing and opera. Despite my parents' plans, I knew I would end up performing right from the start. As challenging as the work was, I was getting encouragement from people I respected for the first time. I'd found my peeps and the thing that made me special. I'd also fallen in love with opera. The beauty and sheer scale of the art form swept me away. All of this gave me the courage to start taking charge of my own life and start taking the stage. It was hard for me to hurt my parents, who'd loved me the best they could, but the life they had in mind for me made me miserable. By the time I reached my master's degree, my voice was blooming, and I was getting great feedback from teachers and audiences. Visions of portraying classic operatic heroines such as Mimi and Violetta infused me with a completely different religious fervor. When I won the district finals of the Metropolitan Opera Competition, it confirmed for me that I was on the right path. I told my parents that I was done with the church once and for all. I'm sure they hoped that God would understand. As for me, I was worshipping at a different altar altogether. It was during my time at school that my future with vision loss came on the horizon. One evening in my first year, while walking with a friend to her place, we took a shortcut through a wooded area behind her house. As we entered the woods, I realized that it was too dark for me to navigate through, which was surprising as she was able to manage with whatever moonlight was shining through the trees. We laughed about it, and she helped me stumble my way through. That incident made me realize that my vision wasn't like everybody else's, but I didn't give it much thought. I'd never worn glasses, and I took having perfect vision for granted. It was only a few years later when I finally visited the optometrist for what I thought would be a routine check that I discovered that my eyes truly were different. I was referred to an ophthalmologist and diagnosed with autosomal dominant retinitis pigmentosa. 
My father, the carrier of the gene, didn't even realize that he had a problem, so I was not that concerned. The progression of the disease was so slow that in my mid-twenties, it had very little impact on my life. If it progressed as slowly as my father's had, I figured I had more pressing things to worry about. And so, after finishing my master's degree, I began the pursuit of a career as an opera singer. I did concert work and small roles here on the West Coast and into Washington State. For a long time, I also had the obligatory day job waiting tables, which was a weird juxtaposition. One night in a ball gown in front of an orchestra, basking in applause. The next night, serving pasta in sensible shoes. I also met and fell in love with my future husband, Kiko. He and I had met at an opening party of a production of The Tales of Hoffman. We hit it off. He said he'd call, and he actually did. Always a good sign. He was a playwright and a director, so we shared a love of the arts, and we actually ended up working together after we became a couple, which made the obvious move to the bright lights and bigger opportunities of Toronto a lot less appealing. I was getting enough work in Vancouver and was having too much fun with Kiko to imagine leaving. Now I realized that although I loved applause, I also wanted a strong family and home life. Most working opera singers are away from home eight or nine months of the year. Deep down, I think I knew that such a life was not for me. So, Kiko and I moved in together and began building a life in Vancouver. I decided that I would branch out and try to work in whatever areas I could locally. Opera, concert work, music theater, chorus, whatever somebody would hire me for. But if I'm honest, I have to admit that I had another reason not to pack my bags and pursue a bigger career out east. Despite my early success, I knew I had not really mastered my instrument. More and more, despite expensive coaching, the struggles to sing with beauty and ease seemed like a puzzle I'd never fully solve. I was still being offered work, but I knew that I just couldn't do all the things I wanted to do with my voice. As time went on, this led to work that I wasn't really happy with. Then Kiko and I had our first child, and my priorities changed. I quit chasing solo work altogether and took on the more predictable work that came with being in a chorus. On some level, I knew that my days on the stage were numbered, but still I clung on to the dream that had saved me from the unhappy religious life of my youth. Adding on to all this, my vision was deteriorating much faster than my father's had, making life pretty complicated, but I was stuck. The question is why? Why was I holding on so tight that when I did lose my grip, I had an audience of 3,000 or so to witness it? When I came off stage that night at the opera, reality hit me doubly hard. I had to admit that I was going blind and that my dream of being an opera singer had been dead for a long time. Why do people get stuck? I've had some time to think about this question, but recently I've done some research to find a clearer answer. Jennifer Garvey Berger, a development coach and author, writes about what it means to get stuck. It turns out that as we get older, it's our job to move through four stages of adult development. The self-sovereign mind, the socialized mind, the self-authored mind, and the self-transforming mind. Most people seem to get stuck somewhere along the way. How does it all work? Well, it goes a little like this. Chomp to the left or right. The Indian 
shot is that in our early years, we seem to gravitate towards structure and certainty. I did. But as we get older, we're supposed to move forward on the developmental path and open up to the benefits of the uncertain. Sort of like an improvising jazz musician riffing along with others, rather than believing that life can be rehearsed and perfected. So why did I get stuck? According to Harvard psychologist Dan Gilbert, I was suffering from an illusion. Specifically, an end-of-history illusion, as he talks about in his book, Stumbling on Happiness. I stumble on a regular basis, so this title really got my attention. Apparently, no matter how old we are, we are all prone to the mistaken belief that the way we are now is more or less the way we are always going to be. Our finished self, as good as it gets. It doesn't matter whether we're 20 or 70. Our ability to predict how much we can and will change always falls short of how much we actually do change. Our imagination about the future is not trustworthy, and Gilbert has cutting-edge research to prove it. If I learned anything from my ungraceful exit stage left, it is that my imagination about the future was developmentally delayed. I was holding on so tight because I couldn't imagine anything good could come next. But then I got a cosmic boot to the butt, which ended up bringing me unexpected benefits. It forced me to drop my baggage, well, at least some of it, rev up my imagination, get educated, and try something new, all with no guarantee of success, and to get to be okay with that. So what happened after I reached the bottom of the stairs that night at the opera? Gratefully, I was able to find my way backstage in time for my next entrance. I finished the performance and the season and retired from the opera chorus. Then I grieved. A lot at first, but after a while only part-time. I turned my attention to teaching with Vancouver Opera's Education and Outreach Program. To my surprise, although I found classroom teaching challenging, I also found it incredibly rewarding. I realized how much I loved learning and sharing what I had learned. It was so exhilarating to dive into music and theater again, seeing it through the eyes of my young students. I remembered the things that had brought me such joy in the first place, imagination and creativity. Rather than focusing so much on the outcome, I saw the value of the process, saying, let's try this, and what if we did that? These were experiences that I had never imagined would be so gratifying. I remember once helping a grade 7 class adapt and perform a workshop opera of The Secret Path, a graphic novel by Jeff Lemire and Gord Downey. This book and album are based on the story of Shani Wenjak, the 12-year-old indigenous boy who tragically died of exposure while trying to walk home from his residential school during an Ontario winter. My students, about the same age as Shani Wenjak, really took his story to heart. 
My partner teacher and I were able to help them create the words, music, costumes, set projections, and sound effects of the show. What followed was an incredibly moving performance and a learning experience that none of us will ever forget. I am so grateful for that time. But my vision continued to get worse. My colleagues were very supportive, but I knew that it was time to turn another page. The classroom setting was getting too difficult, and this time I wanted to manage my transition a little more mindfully. And so, in the winter of 2020, I let my employers know that I would be moving on. And then, something unexpected. A global pandemic hit, and suddenly I wasn't the only one pivoting. Hi everybody, welcome to Zoom Music Class. Oh, I think you're on mute, Letitia. I finished up the school year over Zoom and with mixed emotions said goodbye to teaching music. It's kind of hard to clap rhythms when you're jumping on your bed, isn't it? I'd miss it, but I also knew that I needed to focus some time and energy on a new project, learning how to be blind. I turned to the CNIB, which helped me learn how to cope emotionally. I joined a support group and did some volunteer work. During lockdown, Everything went virtual and accessible, so I added in career and employment workshops, where I learned about things like transferable skills and networking strategies. WorkBC was also really helpful in getting me equipped with technology and training in screen reading software. Happily, I also got to know AMI and started learning about some of the issues that are important in the disability community. Along the way, I have met some really amazing people, and my education continues. COVID-19 certainly showed that what seems impossible can very suddenly and shockingly become possible, even if it is painful in the short term, like walking off the stage in the middle of a performance. I have so much more to learn, and I really have no idea where I will end up in six months' time. But maybe that's the point. When it comes right down to it, none of us know. Tomorrow may bring a new life-altering event that forces us to let go of our end-of-history illusion and write a new chapter or find a new voice. I don't anticipate ever singing with an orchestra again, but that doesn't mean I won't sing. In fact, since I stopped being paid to sing, I've had the time to fool around with different songs and styles. I think I'm on my way to finding my new voice, although I don't think it will be classical. These days, I'm much more into jazz. I never cared much for moonlit skies I never wink back at fireflies But now that the stars are in your eyes I'm beginning to see the light I never went in for afterglow Or candlelight on the mistletoe But now when you turn the lamp down low I'm beginning to see the light Used to ramble through the park Shadowboxing in the dark Then you came and caused a spark That's a forlorn fire now I never made love but lantern shine I never saw rainbows in my wine But now that your lips are burning mine I'm beginning to see the light voice was written and performed by, well, me, Julia Bonnet. Backing tracks for La Cloche au Sonnet and La Fleur que tu m'avais jetée, provided by Aberforth D. 
These works were modified from the original and licensed for use under Creative Commons. You can find more of his works at thesoundofopera.com and subscribe to The Sound of Opera on YouTube. Music and recording of I'm Beginning to See the Light by Glenn Sherman. Special thanks to Sofia Gonzalez Bonnet for sound effects and other recordings. And Les Dalla for his assistance. Our technical producer is Matt Agnew. The technical supervisor is Paula Deneen. And the manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank. Thanks for listening. Used to ramble through the park Shadow boxing in the dark Then you came and caused a spark That's a four-alarm fire now I never made love for lantern shine I never saw rainbows in my wine But now that your lips are burning mine I'm beginning to see the light That's Julie. That tape is Julie on here. Wait, 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 wait. It's not over yet. I'm Kelly McDonald, host of AMI's Kelly and Company, here with my co-host, Ramya Muthan, for a little peek behind the scenes with Julia. In addition to being AMI's summer apprentice producing this podcast, Julia is also a community reporter on Kelly and Company. Julia, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you guys doing? Well, we're always all set to have some fun with the roundtable, throw some opinions around and just, uh, you know, see what we have to say about stuff. Let's talk a little bit about the fact that through the summer, you've been an apprentice over here at AMI and you've been working on an incredible project, um, a podcast. Uh, well, first of all, let's start with what was it like doing a whole production from home? Oh, you know what? It worked really, really well. I, I, I don't mind it at all. I was able to to kind of uh, juggle my various hats and uh, my various duties and put time in when I wanted to, whether that was midnight or six in the morning or whatever. Actually, the only thing is being in Vancouver, everything's three hours earlier, right? So <laughs> those 7.30 meetings were kind of a challenge for me sometimes. But um, no, it, it, it I enjoyed it thoroughly. I had a great time. Can you describe the studio space that you developed to do this? Oh, well, let's see. There's There were a few different spaces. <laughs> I mean, I, I would do my writing in my office, which is fine, but it was too loud for recording. So then I would, uh, the first one was my son's room in the basement, which is farther back from the street. You know, all the dirty laundry on the floor was awesome for, like, <laughs> for soaking, soaking up, up sound. all the noise. Ah, yeah, so it was just great. But then we had Wi-Fi Fi problems in that in that corner of the house. So then we moved into our, my, my husband's, my bedroom, uh, which was a little closer to the room. So then we're like sticking pillows up in the window to kind of dampen the sound coming from, you know, like if a bus goes by or something like that. So it, it actually worked very well. That's where I am right now, by the way. I'm okay. lounging wow. on my bed. Now that's okay. <laughs> now, how was the disembodied producer voice that you had to deal with? Ah, oh, Matt was just fantastic. He <laughs> was so great at, I mean, just 
letting me um, letting me say what I needed to say and then, you know, making sure that if I said too much or it was getting, you know, just a little too much information, maybe, that <laughs> I, then, I then rolled back a little bit on that. It was it was fantastic. And we, you know, we had a great time, I think. And Matt had some fun too, just bouncing ideas off each other. Oh, what a labor of love though. Uh, did you have one favorite part? Um, well, you know, it's funny because I... I, I absolutely enjoyed the writing and it and it flowed like it was surprising. I mean, it's, you know, it's a memoir, right? So I know myself. I, it's not like I don't know the subject or anything like that. Um, I really enjoyed that. But I, I actually really enjoyed the the adding on of the sort of dramatic sound elements. That that was nice. lots of fun. Oh, yeah. I mean, fantastic. I found uh, some fantastic like audio uh, clips um, of things that, that I never would have imagined, like the sound of the hallway outside of, of the, the the practice rooms in a music right. school, where you would hear the mix of somebody practicing oh, yes. piano scales in one room, somebody hearing oh. uh, somebody singing in another, and the the tuba down the hall, and and it's this it's a very very specific sound to a music uh, school. Okay, and making I found nostalgic. It. Oh, it's wonderful! <laughs> Congratulations, and as they say, time to exit stage left. <laughs> Exactly. Appreciate you doing the podcast. Appreciate you being with us this summer at AMI. And thank you very much for joining us on the roundtable. We will do it again. And um, we'll talk to you as our community reporter here on Kelly and Company very soon. Sounds good. Thanks, you guys. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.